thing this morning. Mark chapter 14. Do you remember what it was like to be in high school? Did you ever wake up as a high schooler and think, you know, I'd really like to be at the butt of everyone's joke today. I'd really like to get ridiculed for the way that I look or the way that I act. And uh, do you remember the extreme pressure that there was as a high schooler to conform to the the way that people were, to be one of the cool kids? Well, if you think about it, that sentiment doesn't change a whole lot when we get older. I mean, none of us want to feel slighted when we go to the workplace or to family gatherings. None of us want to be ridiculed for our beliefs, be called a religious wacko. And so even as adults, we conform or we, we falter under the pressure of, of uh, trying to, to be accepted. We can temporarily lose courage in the midst of persecution. Jesus has been um, teaching his disciples for the last time. He was in the upper room, the last meal together with the disciples before his resurrection. And uh, after having left there, they went to Gethsemane for Jesus to pray. He prayed for several hours apparently and and at that time, the soldiers and the crowd came to arrest him. He was arrested and taken before the Jewish court. He was um, tried before Caiaphas. And later he'll be tried before, before the, the Roman court, before Pilate and King Herod. But here today we're going to look at another trial that's going on. It's not the trial of Jesus but it's the trial of one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter. We'll read about that in verses 66 through 72. Let me begin reading in chapter 14 with verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Even the strongest of believers can temporarily lose courage. God had orchestrated the events of the final days in such a way that we can see both the trials of Jesus and the trials of the trial of Peter at the same time. We saw the portion of the trial of Jesus last week when Jesus was charged with blasphemy. That charge will come to a head here in chapter 15, verse 1, when they actually make the final decision. But now we see 
this trial that's going on here below in the courtyard. The courtyard of the high priest. And this was the trial of Peter. And these trials come with two different outcomes, don't they? We see the setting actually in verse 54. Let's look up to verse 54. In verse 53, we saw that Jesus was there with the high priest. Then 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So the location of this trial of Peter, the disciple, was the same place as as the trial of Jesus. It It was at the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews. This was located southwest of the Temple Mount. And um, and uh, then west of there was where Pilate resided. So Jesus was later going to be sent to Pilate. And then northwest of there was, was uh, where Herod's temple was. So he would go from Caiaphas' temple to Pilate's palace where he stayed while he was in Jerusalem. And then Herod's temple and then back to, Pilate, and back to Pilate, and then he would eventually be sent off to be crucified. And the Jews probably had it in this location. We talked about this last week. Probably in order to keep everything secret. They were not supposed to be having a trial at night. Uh, they were only supposed to have trials during the day. And they were not supposed to have a trial in the palace of the high priest. So they broke both of their own laws. And uh, the main reason that they were keeping it secret was because they wanted to maintain the popularity that they had with the crowd. They didn't want to lose the crowd, the, the, the following of the crowd. They didn't want to riot on their hands. And so they had this trial of Jesus in secret. And we know that this is happening at the same time that Peter's trial is happening at the same time as the trial of Jesus. Not, uh, they're not one right after another. In other words... It's not Jesus has his trial and then they begin to beat him. You see that at the end of verse 65. Some began to spit on him and blindfold him. And then, and then we think that now there's a new trial that starts with Peter. And this is a trial among his peers. No, I believe that these are actually happening at the same time. And the reason I say that is because you see that Mark connects them apparently at the end of verse 54. And he, Peter, was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Look down at verse 67. And the servant girl, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him. You see, for Mark to explain both of these stories that were happening at the same time would have been difficult. He would go from here talking about Jesus and his trial, and then chronologically speaking, then Peter did this, and then Jesus, and he'd have to keep going back and forth. So instead, he, he breaks it up into two events, but they're, I believe that they're actually happening at the same time. Um, so let's look at the denials of Peter, and, and we see these in verses 66 through 71. First of all, we see Peter's first denial in verses 66 through 68. Peter enters the high priest's palace in verse 66. Apparently, he gained access from his friend, his fellow disciple, John. John was a friend of the high priest, as we, um, or at least an acquaintance of the high priest, according to John chapter 18, verse 15. But it appears that Peter goes in alone. He gains access to the high priest's palace, but he goes in alone. And now we see the accusation by the servant girl in verse 66. 
As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. This servant girl may have also been the doorkeeper. John records that there there was a doorkeeper there, and so it's possibly the same person. I imagine that what happened was that she saw Peter as he entered in, and maybe in the dark light she 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 recognized the face, but she couldn't put his face with a place or or with a group of people. But later on, as she sees him warming himself by the fire, maybe the glow of the fire now she's able to see his face, and then it clicks for her. I know who you are. You've been with Jesus the Nazarene. And this term that she uses, Jesus the Nazarene, was not a pleasant one. It was probably more like a a a, a saying of contempt. Like, that Nazarene Jesus. You were with that Nazarene. Now, if you remember from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, no one really liked people from Nazareth. In fact, Nathaniel, Jesus' own disciple, when he finds out about Jesus being from Nazareth, he says to Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from that place? It's a, it's a, it's a disgusting place and, and people are, are not very upright from that place. So how could that possible, be possible? And so this lady, probably with the normal sentiment of that area, thought of Jesus as that Nazarene, that wicked place. And so you can understand Peter's, uh, Peter's temptation here. Do I want to be associated with this man, that Nazarene, the person who is looked down upon? And so we see what Peter's first response is here in verse 68, that he denies knowing who this man is. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The word denied is an indicative in the the, the Greek language, it simply means exactly what it says, that he denied it, probably just a one-time type of thing. No, I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And so, as, as a result of trying to stay away from further persecution, he decides to go out onto the porch. The porch was this archway that would lead from the inner courtyard out into the street. Uh, or out of the exterior of the palace. And so he probably goes there to hide, maybe in the shadows there, um, and, uh, and to, to avoid further persecution. Now, if you have a King James Version, it records in this verse that a rooster crowed for the first time after this first denial. Uh, if you have another translation, most of the other uh, modern translations do not have anything about a rooster crowing the first time here. And um, I think based on the earliest and strongest Greek manuscripts that, that we have, that the, the rooster crowing was actually an addition that the King James translator added in. It's not to say that that didn't happen because the rooster did have to crow the first time, but, but it's just the fact that, that Mark didn't actually record it. So Peter's first denial. He feels a little bit of the squeeze, the, the, the pressure that's coming from outside of him, and he doesn't want to he, he doesn't want to get ridiculed as a result of his relationship with Jesus Christ, does he? And so instead of acknowledging his relationship, he denies it. 
We see this happen a second time in verses 69 and 70. The second accusation comes in verse 69. The servant girl saw him, okay, apparently the same one, and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. It seems to be more emphatic that this is one of them. I know it. I'm confident of it. Here, you verify this with me. It sounds like she has these bystanders around her and based on what we know from the other Gospels, from Luke and John and Matthew, that that it's not just her who says this. They also recognize him. In fact, Matthew records that another lady other than the servant girl says that this was one of them. Luke records that it, there was a man who said that this was one of them. So they all apparently come together and they're all looking at him, perhaps while he's still in the porch, the the, uh, the archway between the um, the courtyard and the outside of the palace. And they verify this claim. Yes, this is true. You're right. It is It is one of them. Notice Peter's denial in verse 70. But again, he denied it. Peter, this, this word here is probably better translated that he kept on denying it. The first word, the first word denied in verse 68, I said was an indicative. This one is actually an imperfect verb. And the reason I pointed that out before, that it was an indicative, is because you need to understand that that's a one-time type thing, that he denied it. No, that's not me. This time, it's an imperfect, and that means that he kept on. He insisted. He continually said, no, 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 no. You got me all wrong. I am not with that man. Our translation doesn't pull that out very well, but that's the way that the original language was written. And what you see is that as the intensity of the accusation increases, so does the intensity of the denial. That it begins with, hey, weren't you with that person? And now, notice what the difference is. Notice their accusation in verse 69 at the end. This is one of them. It wasn't that you were just with Jesus, that you are one of His close twelve. You're one of His disciples. I know it. And so the accusation is starting to get ramped up a little bit more. It's not just that you were with him, you were actually one of him, one of them. And Peter's denial also gets increased in intensity. First he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And the second time he says, no, that is not true. You don't understand. Stop saying that. I'm not one of them. I don't know this man. And so now we have the third accusation in verse 70, the second part of the verse. After he denied it the second time, it says, After a while, while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. The bystanders had suggested that he had been with Jesus because uh, they recognized that he was part of that group, but also they had further verification that you are from the Galilean area. And we can tell because of Apparently, his appearance and his voice. He probably had a different complexion of skin than those in the south, those who were in Jerusalem. Remember, Galilee's up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And so he maybe had a darker complexion, and also he probably had an accent that they could recognize that this was a Galilean and not a, a Judean. And uh, we, we shouldn't be too surprised by this, that different areas of the same country can have 
different dialects. It would be like a person from Minnesota trying to say that he was from Nashville, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious with your accent that you're from Minnesota. We can tell. Don't try to deny it. And so these two things together, that you are a Galilean, based on the way that we can tell, okay, based on your appearance and your voice, we can tell that you're a Galilean. You have to be one of them because we've seen somebody, perhaps before he had said no. Maybe it's somebody else that looked just like me. And um, so they give further um, proof, perhaps, to show that he was with Jesus and they become more adamant in their accusation. But Peter becomes more adamant in his denial. Notice verse 71. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And so the intensity increases even more. He begins to curse and swear. Now, what was going on here? Was Peter sounding like a drunken neighbor who just had his car hit, his parked car out in the street and uh, and was upset? Or... Does this give us as Christians, because we understand that Peter actually did great things for God uh, in the future, does this give us a license to curse and swear? But the curse here in this verse and throughout the rest of the Scriptures you'll find does not have to do with profanity, saying a swear word. Um, Rather, this is calling on the sacred name of God as a guarantee that something is true. And uh, Jesus said that that we should be careful when we do this, when we call down an oath on ourselves. That he said it would be better to make your yes yes and your no no. Okay, just be truthful all the time. You won't have to say, "I call on the source of a higher power." Okay, you you hear some people say, "I swear to God," or or they have to give further proof. I promise. Okay, Jesus is saying, just let your yes be yes. And you're no, no. What what Peter is doing is not cursing and swearing like we would think of it today. The first word curse means simply to make a statement like this. Let there be a curse on me if I'm not telling the truth. Look in the margin of your Bible with this verse 71. Uh, you should have a note there. In, in my margin it says, put himself under a curse. Okay, that, that gives you a better idea of what that means to curse in this context. He's saying, listen, let there be a curse on me if I'm not telling the truth. I am so serious about what I'm saying that, that if this is not true, let there be a curse come down on me. It was, it was um, basically for Peter to say, let me be cursed if I'm lying. Okay, if I am not telling you the truth, then let me be cursed. And what's ironic about the situation is that Peter calls down a curse upon himself in order to avoid a lesser curse by the crowd, what they could have done to him. He felt the pressure coming in, and in order to avoid that smaller curse, he calls down a greater curse from God. Let God curse me if I am lying. The second word there, swear, Okay, both of these we use in our, our day, in our society, to refer to profanity, but but Peter's using them in a different way. First word curse has to be has to do with uh, calling down a curse upon himself. The second word swear has to do with swearing by an oath. Okay, in Mark chapter six, verse twenty three, Herod said to his stepdaughter, That I swear to you, 
Okay? I promise to you that you can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. Remember, she asked for the head of John, John the Baptist on a platter. And so basically what Peter is saying here is, let there be a curse on me if I'm lying. That's the, that's the word curse there. And then the swear is, um, I take an oath in, with God as my witness. Okay, so think about yourself in a courtroom when you have to testify against someone else. What do you do? You put your, your left hand on the Bible and you raise your right hand, right? And you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why do we do that? We do that because we're calling on a greater person than us to hold us accountable. That's a greater oath. We're not just flippantly saying anything about what's going on here in court. We're being completely serious about what we have to say. And I don't think there's anything that would be inherently wrong with doing something like that. Peter does it uh, in this way to, to actually lie. And so what it really, it really demarcates how bad his lie really is. It really sets apart his lie as even worse than if he just said, no, it's not me. But he tries to, to, to basically call down God as his witness. Let me be accursed if I'm lying. And so his statement comes out like this at the end of verse 71. I do not know this man you are talking about. He never says the man's name. He never says, I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. He says, I don't even know this man. Who, who are you talking about? One commentator says this was the greatest failure of all of the disciples. Uh, the eleven disciples, that is. Obviously, uh, Judas is, was worse. But Peter was a very zealous man for the sake of Christ. And his denials really can be contrasted with his affirmations of Christ earlier in the chapter. Look at verse 29. Remember when Jesus says that that when you when when the sheep is struck then the sh- or when the shepherd is struck then the sheep will be scattered in other words when they kill me you're all going to go away but notice what peter says in verse 29 but peter said to him even though all may fall away yet i will not he gives an affirmation of his devotion to god and then jesus said or his devotion to jesus Then verse 30, And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Notice Peter's second affirmation. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And and they all, that is the other disciples, were saying the same thing also. How how could this be? See, he gives even greater uh, weight to his affirmation. And then we see it in action in verse 45. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him, that is Jesus. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. You see, Peter's great uh, zeal for following Christ. That he was willing to do anything. If it means I have to take the sword and I have to die for you, I will do it. But not more than a couple hours later, he's now standing before people who could do nothing more than than maybe uh, give him some persecution, perhaps even kill him, and he's ready to deny Christ three times. 
Notice his remorse in verse 72. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. The rooster crows would have been separated by a few minutes. Peter may have heard it, but but perhaps it didn't click in his mind until the rooster crowed the second time. I think of it like the uh, the clock that chimes in our house. Often it'll ring on the hour, and I won't even recognize that it had rung. And Peter perhaps heard that first rooster crow because he had heard thousands of rooster crows before. But it wasn't until that second time that it clicked in his head and he realized what he had done. And notice, uh, turn to Luke chapter 22 because we see a little bit more detail as to what happens when Peter remembers what Jesus had said. We find out, first of all, that that while he was still speaking this third denial, the rooster crowed. That while he was still saying, I promise you, I call down a curse on myself. I swear with God as my witness that I do not know this man. And while he's saying this, the rooster crows the third time. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 60. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then notice verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Do you see that in verse 61? That the rooster crowed while he was still speaking. And then he caught the eye of Jesus. Jesus turned and looked at him. And it must have been a disappointed look that he had. At that time, Peter remembered back to when they had that Passover the previous night. He remembered that Jesus said, before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me three times. At that time, Peter's thinking, no, that could not possibly have happened. I will go all the way to the death with you. If that would, that's what it means. And now he realizes that he actually went back on his resolve to stand up for God. The end of, turn back to Mark chapter 14. The end of our passage reads that he began to weep. The translation in your margin is actually a better translation than what you have there, and he began to weep. Uh, I believe it says, thinking of this, he began weeping. Or rushing out, he began weeping. It probably has to do more with, as he thought about these things, then he began to weep. And the King James Version, I think, pulls this out well. It says, when he thought thereupon, he wept. When he had put his mind on thinking about what he had just done in relationship to what Jesus had said he would do, and he became remorseful. He began to weep. And imagine the rest of Peter's life, perhaps every morning, when he heard that rooster crow, how it caused his memory to think back to that time when he denied Christ. Perhaps it incited within his memory the very look of Jesus. 
how Jesus looked at him with such disappointment. What a significant day this was in the life of Peter. Why do you suppose it is that Peter denied Christ? What was his problem? I mean, he had resolve, didn't he? He he said he wasn't going to do it. Why did he do it? I think, first of all, we have to say that he was motivated by fear. He was fearful for his own life. Look at verse 53. The passage we looked at last week. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest and the chief priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. With whom was Peter sitting? He was sitting with the very officers that brought Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He took him from that very place on the mountain. These officers took him and brought him to the palace of the high priest. These ones who could do great damage to Peter. And this is the people who Peter is sitting around. He's not just sitting around a bunch of people from the grocery store, the, the supermarket. He's sitting around people with swords and spears and who are trained in battle. And so at the very basic, most basic level, I would say that Peter was fearful for his own life. But at a higher level, I would say to you that Peter denied Christ for the same reason we all deny Christ. And that is because as Christians, we are still susceptible to sin. Turn to Romans chapter 7 with me. As Christians, we are still susceptible and always will be in this body, in this life, always will be susceptible to sin. Romans chapter 17, we'll read verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Notice Paul, the greatest of Christians, even struggled with denying Christ, with not doing what he ought to do. Romans 7, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Do you ever have that struggle in your own thoughts, your own mind? Verse 16, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing but doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Okay, this is similar to Peter. The willing, the resolve to do what's right in me, but, but the, uh, the doing of the good is not. I can't always do what I want to do. Verse 19. Paul says, For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, 
Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Peter denied Christ because he was fearful for his own life, but also because as a human, he will always be, even as a regenerated human, he will always be susceptible to sin. And we will as well. So how do we overcome fear? How do we stand up under persecution? How do we do what Peter did not in this situation? I think the answer to that is to follow the example of Jesus. And I think that's why this passage is so beautifully uh, works together that both of these events really happened at the same time. Jesus was different than Peter in that Jesus stood up under his persecution. When they came with all these accusations against him, instead of being adamant against their accusations, he was simply calm. He performed no violence. He sat back and knew that this was not the end. He realized that this life was not all that there was worth living for. And so we must be like Jesus. Peter should be like Jesus. To be calm under persecution. Recognizing that God has all things under, the, under control and that this life is, all, is not all that there is worth living for. So we need to see beyond our circumstances. We need to have an eternal perspective like Jesus did. See, Peter's thinking about the here and the now. What's going to happen to me now? Instead of thinking about what is the long-term effect of this, what is the eternal effect of my decision that I'm making right now? How will this affect the name of God? And we do that by setting our affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. Because our, our life is hidden with Christ in God. We're set here in this life. Yes, the setting's here, but, but we have our view for another life, a life to come. And I think we also learn from the example of Jesus by doing what He did. In Mark chapter 14, verses 37 and 38, He watched and prayed. Peter did not. When they were on the mountain of Gethsemane, Jesus took time and He prayed to His Father. He recognized that He needed God he could not depend on himself alone. He needed God, and so do we. Peter, during that time, was doing what? He was sleeping. And instead of preparing himself for the, the temptations that were ahead, he gave up and fell asleep. And so we need to be on the alert. Don't be overconfident in, in your own abilities, in your own resolve. Hey, Peter, the best of all, all disciples to that time, he failed, even though he had resolve. These trials happened simultaneously, and I think they happened at the same time, the trial of Peter and Jesus, in order to show us how to respond in the midst of persecution and how not to respond in the midst of persecution. Jesus prayed that God would protect him from the hour of testing, that he would, yes, remove him from it, but also that he would be upright in this hour and what happened to Jesus? He persevered. He made it through his trial without sinning. Peter slept and he faltered. What we should learn from this passage is that it's not enough to resolve to do right. 
In other words, it's not enough to have good intentions. Like Paul says, that the willing is there, the desire is there to do what's right. It's not enough to resolve to do what is right. We have to recognize our own weaknesses like Paul did, that there is a warfare going on within our own bodies, our own souls, between the Spirit and the flesh. The Spirit is desiring that we do right and the flesh is desiring that we do wrong. And so we constantly must recognize our own inability that we can't on our own accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. We need to beg God to uphold this and uphold us in times of trial. That's exactly what Peter needed to have done and he did not. The real test of a genuine believer is restoration. Turn back to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. This is the very end of the story. Jesus dies. He is buried. And He is raised from the dead. And notice what the angel says to the two young ladies that are here at the tomb. In chapter 16, verse 6. And He said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. The shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered, but Jesus would bring them all back into the fold. This is the time which He had planned that even after my resurrection, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee and I want you to tell the, the disciples and Peter. See, Peter's not like Judas in that he fell away. Peter is a part of the disciples still. He's still one of my children. Tell him specifically, Peter. The genuine believer responds that he restores fellowship with Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter did. Judas did not. Peter did. And then lastly, we need to understand that if the best of the disciples could deny Christ, if Peter was with Jesus almost at every turn. He was brought to special occasions like the transfiguration and, and other special miracles, brought into the room where Jesus raised a young girl from the dead. Peter saw all these things firsthand. And, and so if the best of disciples could deny Christ... Couldn't it happen to us? I think of Jonah, a prophet of God, a man who is supposed to, to proclaim the Word of God, and yet he turns away from God. If it can happen to Jonah, if it can happen to Peter, if it can happen to Paul, why would it not be able to happen to us as well? But even in the midst of our faltering, even in the midst of our falling, God is there as a merciful God ready for us to turn back to Him and restore fellowship to Him. What a great God we serve that He continues to pursue us. That He is much like Hosea was to his immoral wife. He goes and marries an immoral woman as God told him to and then she continues to participate in immorality, and yet Hosea continues to pursue her when he had every right to divorce her. And God was using Hosea as an example to say that that's how I pursue you. You are not always right. You're not 
always faithful to me. You are I, you're adulterous in the sense that you follow after other gods, but yet I continue to pursue you because I love you. My unconditional love has been poured out on you, Romans chapter 9. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor any other thing, not principalities, not things present, not things to come. And although God's unconditional love and salvation never leaves us, we should recognize that as Christians, like Peter, we can still disappoint our Savior. Can we not? Even though His elective love, His His choice love for us, will never go away, we can still disappoint our Savior. That's why... Peter, or Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So if we can grieve the Holy Spirit as believers, and we can, then we can still disappoint our God. And this is what Peter has done. And so just because God is merciful to us, just because God continues to pour out His love, His unconditional love towards us, We should never presume upon God's grace. Oh, well, I'll just deny Christ at this point, but I know He'll accept me back. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we need to understand that that our eternal security, that God's elective love means that we will continue on in the race till the end. We'll have times where we falter, but, but as a Christian, we will always get up. We'll get up on the other end and we'll be restored to fellowship. And so our job is not to try to look down the the corridors of time and eternity and understand exactly what our position is before God. We need to work on what we're doing now. If God has promised to save those who have called out to Him in repentance and faith, then He will continue to do that work all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. So continue on in the race. Run the race that has been set before you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's a long-term, eternal perspective, not a nearsighted perspective like Peter had. Peter ultimately was restored, and I think that is to his credit. But we should never be complacent in our Christian lives because, hey, God's going to be there when when I'm ready. No, it should grieve us like it did Peter. And so this story really is a story of sadness, yes, but also of hope. That if Peter could deny Christ and still be restored to Christ, then then God can still continue to work through us. So don't be discouraged in your times of struggle. Let your struggle point you closer to God. Let, let, Let it bring you closer to God that, yes, God, I need you. Do you see how weak I am on my own? Let those struggles bring you close to the arms of God and depend on Him for all that you have. That is how God is glorified in the midst of our trials and after our trials are over. May we beg for God's mercy as we work to do this. Let's pray. Father, we have been singing songs of commitment today that You would be our vision, that You would be the Lord of our lives, that that we would have a passion to serve You, not just to do the service, the acts of service, but to love You with all of our hearts. And we've even sung a song of consecration that 
we would rather have Jesus than any other thing. We, we are like Peter in many ways. We have great resolve to do what's right. But our flesh is weak. And there is a warfare going on within us. And sometimes we become overconfident in our own position before You. That because You have shown Your choice love to us, that we don't have to struggle. That everything's going to be okay. But that is true in the ultimate sense, in the final eternal sense. But there is a constant struggle going on. You know. Just like there was within the life of Jesus that He had real temptation He felt the pressure just like we do. And yet He persevered through it because He trusted in You and He put His confidence in You. Oh Lord, help us to see things clearly and to put our confidence in You like we ought to. We need Your grace. We need You to continually show us from Your Word where we are weak. And we need struggles at times to bring us back down to reality recognize that this world is not a friend to grace. That it will not help us on to greater glory and to greater service for You. It will actually pull us away. So we need Your help in this battle. Give us the strength as individuals and as a church to be unified around the truth of Your Word and the recognition that You are a merciful God ready to forgive those who repent. And we pray that if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they would work in their hearts even today to help them to recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, there is great judgment that will be coming. And who can stand against the judgment of Jesus Christ? We pray that You would give them the eyes to see and that Your Spirit would use Your Word to transform and regenerate unbelievers and transform believers into the image of our Savior whom we love. Give us the resolve and the strength to pray for Your help each time we enter into trials before, during, and after. We pray in His name. Amen.